The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so I pray, give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. Give us a heart to receive it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of Proverbs, where we've been talking about what wisdom is and how it applies to everyday life. The the definition that we've been using is that wisdom is competency with regard to the realities of life. And what that really means is this. Wisdom is not just something to be known, it's something to be lived. It's us being able to see and understand and live reality as God intends it to be. And so this morning, what I'd love for us to do is think about wisdom as it pertains to our life's work, but I want to zoom out a little bit. I want us to have a conversation more broadly just about our use of time. And I want to ask you a question that you can just sit with for a while, and it's this. How have you been using the time given to you? Time is the only resource that I can think of that is equally and indiscriminately allotted to all mankind. Money, some have a lot, some have a little. Position, there are those who are born by birthright into a higher social or professional caste than others, And they have more opportunities at their fingertips. Talents, abilities. There are things that we have and things that we don't. You could spend three lifetimes trying to make me into a gymnast and it would never work. I am incredibly inflexible. Maybe I could spend lifetimes trying to make you into a preacher and that wouldn't work either. Point is, we each have different talents and abilities. We're not all 
the same. Those things are not equally or indiscriminately allotted, but time is to all mankind. And not only that, it's a precious resource, isn't it? Time is irretrievable. It's it's non-renewable. It's limited. It's expiring. And so how we use it is of the utmost importance. You know, I would actually argue that it is the most important resource when it comes to our closest relationships. Um, At the end of someone's life, I, I have yet to hear someone say, I wish you had spent more money on me. But hundreds of times over has someone with great regret heard at the end of their life, I wish you had spent more time with me. Relationships tend to be built or they tend to be broken based on quality and quantity of time spent. It's a gift. It's a precious resource. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us as Christians. Time was instituted by God in the act of creation of the greater and the lesser lights, the sun and the moon by which we measure our days. And then shortly after he set these boundaries for time, he created man and woman. He created you and me. And he gave a few commands on what to do with the time of life that he had just given. And these are really the, the summary statements of it. Be my image and likeness. Okay, in a word that's worship. Rejoicing in and reflecting his beauty and his glory with the time that we've been given. And when I say worship, I don't specifically and exclusively mean corporate worship, which is what we're doing right now. I mean a life lived in and with God himself that culminates in Sabbath worship, but it's not exclusively contained to it. So be my image and likeness. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In a word, that's family. Invest in, extend, enrich your family with the time that you've been given. And then he said, subdue the earth and have dominion and rule over creation. Get to work. It's work. Some of us in our work experience think that work was a result of the fall. The truth is, the idea of work preceded the fall. It was a gift given by God for us to use our time towards. And so through the lens of creation itself, time is to be invested principally towards worship, family, and work. You know what that means? If that's true, it means the fullest version of life, the person who is truly most alive, is diligently pursuing these things. Okay, so back to the question. How then are you spending the time that has been given to you in these arenas of life? Are you hardworking or are you lazy? Are you attentive or are you negligent? Are you diligent or are you sluggish? Sluggard. It's a person Proverbs is not unfamiliar with. Over 14 times in its 31 chapters, it refers to the sluggard and it describes him as a fool who gives little or no thought to how he is using the gift of time in the context of his life, but also the context of the lives that are around him. And then juxtaposed to this is the wise man who's described more as an ant. Diligently, fervently, zealously doing the work that he was made to do. So let's take a look at both of those through the eyes of Proverbs this morning. First, the sluggard, and then the ant. 
I'm curious, when I say sluggard, what comes to mind for you? Is it Garfield? Anyone remember Garfield? I still remember as a kid reading the comic strips in the newspaper, and Garfield was one of the ones I would always go to. He's endearing, but he is lazy. Maybe someone like the dude from Big Lebowski. Not as lazy, per se, as Garfield, but seemingly trying to do as little as he can and getting the most out of life. You know anyone like that? Or maybe like Jabba the Hutt. I have no idea what that guy does. I don't know what he says half the time, but he seems to get what he wants, right? Because someone else is always doing his work for him. These are kind of pictures that I I think typify what we think of when we think of a sluggard as an undergroomed or overweight or maybe having the world at their front door, but they're too lazy to answer it and everyone else does their work for them. But the problem with these examples is most of these are endearing characters. We kind of like Garfield. Some of us have pets that are like Garfield, and we encourage them to continue to be like Garfield. The dude, some people aspire to be like the dude in Big Lebowski. I see some heads nodding, mostly in the back, which is fine. It means you probably came in a little late to church. <laughs> Use of time. How's that? Let's pray. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Job of the Hut is intriguing at least, right? But Proverbs doesn't give any kind of positive language to the sluggard. Nothing. The sluggard is seen as someone who's deplorable because their life is the typified wasted life. The first thing we're told in our passage that we have before us today is that the sluggard refuses to work, but it's not for lack of opportunity. Look at Proverbs 24.30. Begins by telling us the sluggard has both a field and a vineyard. He has a field and a vineyard. Opportunity exists. Good work is right in front of his face, but he leaves it. And what happens? It becomes overgrown. It's totally wasted. So a sluggard is not necessarily someone who lacks opportunity, but someone who neglects the opportunities that they have. Unemployment for a sluggard is a choice. So let me say from the outset, if you're here and you're struggling with unemployment, you are no sluggard. You are struggling with unemployment. You're searching. And if you're here and you decided not to work so that you could care to matters of your home or your children or your own health, you were not a sluggard so long as the time is being used to those ends. The sluggard is not like either of these people. The sluggard is willfully unemployed and refuses to work. Laziness is his choice. It's not an infirmity. It's not something that's come upon him. It's something that he chooses. That's the first thing. The second thing we're told about the sluggard is that his life is marked by excessive sleep. His life actually is described as like a perpetual state of slumber. Proverbs 24.33 says this with a bit of irony if you read it. It says a little sleep and a little slumber folding his hands to rest. But in Hebrew, it's actually plural. It forms like a strange phrase. A little sleeps, a little slumbers. And it's signifying that a single night's rest is not enough. Napping after napping after napping after napping. He refuses to get out of bed. And then Proverbs 26, 14 describes this in a different way. It says a sluggard is on his bed and he's like a door swinging on its hinges. When you swing a door on its hinges, 
the door doesn't actually go anywhere. Roll over, wake up, get to the other side. Roll over, wake up. Any teenage parents here experience this phenomenon? Roll over, wake up, right? Constantly sleeping. The only thing the sluggard does in excess is sleep. His life is like a constant state of hibernation. Is he alive? Yes, but he's not living. The third thing we're told about the sluggard in Proverbs is that he's full of excuses. His mind is full of rationalizations. Proverbs 26, 13, if you look at it. There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. It's intended to be comical, but it's also very tragic. Because the sluggard is famous for creating false realities to excuse himself from engaging life, from getting his work done. And this shows here that he's increasingly disconnected from reality and he's starting to believe his own excuses. Verse 16 says he is wise in his own eyes. And this reminds me the gospel reading that Adam did of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 where Jesus is portrayed as a master leaving things behind for his servants. Talents. To one he gives five, to another he gives two, and to the last he gives only one. And it's important to note that what's being actually communicated at the outset of this parable is the generosity of the master, the generosity of Jesus. A talent was worth 20 years wages. No servant in that parable is receiving a puny amount. 20 years of income for the least of them. And so the character of the master, the character of Jesus, is that he's not only generous, he's very trusting. He has work for you to do with what he gives. And what he gives is gracious and generous. And that's why at the end it's so ludicrous, right? Because the servant with only one talent, what does he do? He buries it. He does nothing. And then when asked why, this is what he says. Master, I knew you to be a cruel man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Excuses for his laziness. And they could not be more disconnected from reality, could they? He was generous and trusting, not miserly and cruel which maybe helps us understand why Jesus had such a strong response to him at the end of that story. The sluggard will believe his own lies to avoid responsibility and work. And if confronted with his laziness, the sluggard will blame you, God, someone else, never himself. There's a lion in the streets. It's always going to be the lion's fault. This connects, too, to the fourth thing we're told about the sluggard, and it's that he cannot be corrected. He becomes stubborn and self-defensive. Proverbs twenty-six sixteen. it describes him as someone who has seven wise counselors come to warn him about his ways, and he thinks all of them wrong and himself right. Have you known anyone like this? Don't point to the person next to you that's not kind. It's a scary thing when we can't be corrected. 
when our way of life becomes such a habituated way of being that we cannot be roused out of it. What it points to is severe pride. It's the complete lack of humility. There can be no confession and therefore no forgiveness and therefore no correction or healing if there is no humility. And the sluggard is so stuck in his ways that there's no room for these things even if warned by seven others to do so. It's a pretty bad list, isn't it? Refuses to work, excessive sleep, makes excuses, cannot be corrected. So I just want to pause for a minute, because when I, when I look out and consider all saints and the people typically here, I don't think of underworking, underachieving, lazy types of people. I tend to think more so possibly the other side of things. Highly motivated, highly achieving, and overworking type of people. And the reason I paused is because the fifth and final thing that we learn about the sluggard is actually the one thing that the underworker and the overworker could have in common. Okay, And that's that they are both spiritually starving and dying. They can both be spiritual sluggards. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And then Proverbs 26.15, it portrays the sluggard as a, a hungry man with his hand in the dish, but he can't seem to make his way to his own mouth. Whatever he has been feasting on has left him utterly dissatisfied, and he's stuck, even though he's starving inside. The overworker, the workaholic, suffers from the same malady. Expending so much time on work that there's rarely leftovers for family. And there's even more rarely leftovers for worship, for God, for his very own soul. This is true in the pastorate too. In doing the Lord's work, we can starve our own souls. So please hear me. I'm, I'm sympathetic. I understand. To give all of our time to work and to leave leftovers for anything else. And what's wild is that what tends to happen spiritually in this person who seems nothing like the sluggard, what spiritually happens in this person follows the exact same pattern of the person they're nothing like. Listen, the spiritual sluggard refuses to do the work needed for his soul or the souls of his others, of his family, of his loved ones. The spiritual sluggard lives in a state of spiritual slumber and will simply just roll over if you try to wake them up. I encounter this time and time again in pastoral ministry. The spiritual sluggard will make excuses for his spiritual laziness. Things like, I don't have any time. Or, I'm just trying to provide for my family. And the spiritual sluggard will start to begin those excuses as valid and legitimate. Worst of all, the spiritual sluggard tends to not be correctable. Sermon after sermon, friend after friend, spouse, child, loved one, elder. You can gather seven wise people to come and say, you are spiritually asleep. And they will say, there's a lion in the streets. It's always the lion's fault. And as a result, this person is spiritually withering. 
And friends, if you invest little to know or be known by God, or if you invest little to speak to or be spoken to by God, you will reap exactly what you sow. If you reap nothing spiritually, you will sow nothing spiritually. And you know what grows on ground that has nothing sown in it? It's not nothing. It's weeds. And the uncultivated heart and mind before God will quickly grow weeds in their life. It will inevitably happen. Because you were made, first and foremost, for worship. Weeds always grow in the untended soul. And so this is why things like study and prayer are two of the formation practices at our church. It's not an anti-sluggard checklist. We want to know and be known by him. We want to speak and to be spoken to by him. It's also why we have in worship this, the written word right in front of and on the table of the embodied word. You must feast on him or your soul will starve. It's a guarantee. It's why Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. You have to consume him. The living water, you have to take him in. He calls himself the Passover feast and the new wine. He intends for you to take him in. And he has to be taken in and consumed or our souls will be hungry and our lives restless until we find them filled with him, with his presence. It's what you were made for. It's the first principal use of your time. A spiritual sluggard neglects his primary work. So what if you've been lazy, whether with worship or family or work? What do you do? And Proverbs says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways. Be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. The, the ant is quite different from the sluggard, isn't it? It's self-motivated and looks for good work rather than avoiding it. Instead of sleep, it prepares in the off-season. Instead of excuses, it gathers its food. It's diligent in its ways. It's not afraid to follow orders and yet doesn't require them. It's completely trustworthy. The, the ant lives a seemingly insignificant life, doing a seemingly insignificant job, and yet does it with fervor and zeal. It's like the scripture, the admonition that says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. And this reminds me of, of Paul's admonition that we read in our epistolary reading to the Christians in Rome. Just glance at it for a minute. What do, you, what do you see? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. It's verb form after verb form after verb form after verb form. The fullest life is an active life. The living faith is an active faith. When I was in Dallas, uh, there's, he's now a young adult there named Michael. I had known him since he was a kid, just before middle school. And he was one of those kids that things just came easy for him. He was good looking. He was athletic. He had a beard by the time he was 15 and a half. 
He kept it and saved it into his shadow beard, which I have now, and he thinks he paved the way for that when he was 15 and a half. Just a really gifted, naturally gifted young man. And it didn't change for him. He went to college and he excelled while also doing the frat life thing. Came back, got a job with a great company, and because he had relational skills to put on top of these natural talents and abilities, he excelled very quickly. He was surpassing his, his counterparts. And you know what I noticed? Michael wasn't at church. So being the good pastor I am, I chased him down. I had a lunch with him, talked to him about his work, everything that was going on. And he knew we were going to talk about faith, and so he brought it up. And at the very end of the conversation, he said, you haven't seen me at church. I said, I haven't. He said, Brent, I'm bored in my faith. I paused about that long, and the first thing that came out of my mouth, I was glad it did. I said, Michael, your faith is boring. The problem is not really that you're bored in your faith. It's that your faith is boring. You're asleep. You do nothing spiritually. Why would you ever expect your faith to be alive? Friends, if that's you, the admonition of Paul in Scripture Wake up, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look how you walk carefully, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And you know what, friends? The best things in life tend to require the hardest work and the greatest effort, don't they? The ant knows this, but no one exemplified this better than Jesus Christ. No negligence, no sluggishness, no excuses, just utter self-sacrifice. The hardest of work. And you talk about a bad job, unwanted employment. He was, he was commissioned to be terminated. He was bankrupted for another's debt. He labored his whole life for another's gain. He became poor that someone else might become rich in his blood and his sweat and his tears and his labor. That was actually our work to bear. Him doing our job for us. Our laziness, our excuses, our negligence. And yet, what are we told when he looked at the work of the cross? that for the joy that was set before him, he endured it, despising all of its shame. Because he wanted to expend his time, his very life, for you, for me, the hardest of work. Titus 2 says it this way, he gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Proverbs says, go to the ant, but I say, wake up and go to the cross. Consider the great and hard work that he has done. And then let us together come and feast. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray, wake us up from our slumber to be zealous, not to earn your love, but because in Christ we already have it. 
to be fully alive in you, Lord Jesus. So feed now those who are hungry and forgive now those who confess their need. Amen.